0: Welcome to Whitewater Wesleyan Community Church, where we invite you to believe in Jesus, belong to his church, and become like him. Stay tuned for this week's message. This morning I'm reading from Luke's Gospel, and I'm reading in chapter 16, and I'm going to start in verse 1. Luke chapter 16 and verse 1. I'm reading down to the end of verse 13. And then I'm going down to verse 19 and reading to the end of verse 31. Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. The manager said to himself, Well, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig. And I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe the master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, "Sit, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? "A 1,000 bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than the people of light. And I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself, so that when it is gone you will be welcomed into the eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No, ma- no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And then verse 19. There was a rich man who dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and was carried uh, into Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things while Lazarus received bad things. And But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send low, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. This is my uh, final message in the series of parables that I started earlier this summer. And I told you that the parables provide a window into the kingdom of God. And I tried to explain to you what I meant by the kingdom of God or what is meant in the Bible by the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the domain that Jesus Christ came to establish in the hearts of his followers. And this kingdom that he establishes in our hearts is countercultural to the ways of the world around us. When we build our own kingdoms, we build kingdoms unto ourselves. We glorify self. But the kingdom that Jesus comes to put in us glorifies God. And every follower of Jesus Christ coronates Jesus Christ as king to rule their lives and to order their conduct. But that's not all that there is about the kingdom of heaven. At some point in the future, and it may be closer than we anticipate, Jesus will return to earth, and he will be dressed in all of his majestic glory. And his rule will be finally established, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God. And this is the ultimate end for those now living out the kingdom of heaven. And in our series of parables, uh, messages on the parables, we have seen a pattern. And the pattern is that sometimes when Jesus told a parable, he told three of them. He, he, they, he told one right after another. In the first of this series, in Mark chapter four, we saw th- three parables on planting seed, and in them we learned we learned about the power and the potential of the kingdom of heaven. Its growth is inherent in the gospel and the development of the kingdom of heaven will never cease. It is continuing to this very day. And then after that, we looked at three dinner parables found in Luke chapter 14. And in them, we saw characteristics of those who are citizens in the kingdom of heaven. And we learned that when Jesus returns, there will be one great festival, one great feast. And then after that, After the dinner parables, we studied the parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And we learned that Jesus came to earth to seek and to save those who were lost. And he invites them to enter into the kingdom of heaven. So today we're going to study three more parables. I didn't read to you the first parable because I read it when we looked at the parables of the lost. The parable of the lost son, the third parable in the three lost parables, serves as a transition story. See, it fits both the parables of the lost and what I'm going to call today the parables of the trust. It fits into both. It's the third in the parable of the lost. It's the first in the parable of the trust or the trust parables. See, when someone enters the kingdom of heaven, Through Jesus Christ, they become stewards or managers. They become responsible for all they are and all that they have. They are given, in essence, a trust. They're made made responsible for how they manage their resources, how they manage their talents, their time, and their spiritual gifts. And they are to use all that they have and all that they are to glorify God. That's why we're part of the kingdom of heaven. And also, we will give an account on the management of all that God has given to us. We will be held responsible for all of his blessings. Now, the trust parables that we're talking about this morning deal primarily with money. And I, I wonder why Jesus wants to talk money. He talks money a lot. And actually, I thought of this being my 2nd my last sermon. I go, boy, I'm preaching money again. But, but it's the message of Jesus, really. And, and, uh, and he, he understands that we understand money talk. We understand about money coming and going. But the message that I want to get you to today, although I'll be focusing on money because that's what the parables focus on, they, sh- they should be applied to all aspects of our lives, all parts of our lives. We're not excused from being stewards in the kingdom of heaven, managers in the kingdom of heaven. We're not excused because we think we're poor or, we're, or we think, well, I don't have a bank account. How can I be a steward of anything? We are responsible for every blessing of life. We're responsible for it all, for health and for opportunities time, and talent. So I want to review the parables very quickly again with you. The first parable is the parable of the lost son. Now, I didn't read that parable this morning. But you know that parable. I read it the last time I preached. It's in the parable. A father had two sons. The younger of the sons asked asked for his share of the inheritance. He couldn't wait for his father to die. The father granted the son his request. And a few days later... The young son, the young man gathered all that he had, had and he moved to a far country. And it says there in Luke chapter 15, verse 13, he wasted all his money in wild living. That's the key phrase for this parable. He wasted all his money in wild living. This phrase is what makes this a trust parable. The father trusted his son With the inheritance, the son wasted it in wild living. So the focus is on the word wasted. Because we're going to see that same word in the next parable. So keep that word in mind, wasted. Now the word wasted in the original Greek, it was used to describe the practice of winnowing. Okay, the newly harvested grain is tossed up into the air. You've seen this. Maybe you've done it. And the breeze, the slight breeze, blows away the chaff, and the good seed falls back to the ground. And so they continue to do that until there's no more chaff to be blown away, and what you have is the good grain. Well, the word wasted in Greek was originally used to describe the tossing up. Of the grain and the chaff in the air. Wasting, wasting, wasting. And then it came to mean to scatter and to disperse. And finally it meant to squander, to waste, or to throw things around. And in the parable, it's basically describing how this young man spent his money. He threw it up in the air. He wasted it. And he used it on any whim or pleasure that was his for the moment. And he would throw it away. He spent it all on impulses to satisfy his immediate pleasures. Of course, you don't need a money management course for this. If you waste your money, if you throw it up in the air and throw it around, eventually it runs out. And the prodigal ended up feeding pigs, hungering after the pods they were fed. He eventually came to his senses, and he returned to his father's house. He was willing to be a servant, but the father welcomed him home as a son. Now the second parable is the parable of the shrewd manager. Now this parable causes some consternation among scholars because the actions of the manager They're not commendable. He he did some deceitful things, wrong things. And Jesus was not condoning uh, uh, dishonesty in telling this parable. His parables are taken from just common occurrences, just things that you see. That's what he would tell his stories on. Ordinary events in which he would draw a, a, a spiritual principle concerning the kingdom of heaven. And in the parable... Of of the shrewd manager, in verse 8, Jesus described this manager as dishonest. He was a dishonest manager. It's interesting that the same Greek word translated into English as dishonest in verse 8 is translated as worldly in verse 9. Same word. In one verse, it's dishonest. In the next verse, it's, it's worldly. Well, I think what Jesus is telling us here is that the way of the world, when it comes to the world of commerce, is largely what? Dishonest. You got to watch your deals, you got to be on the lookout all the time. It's a commentary on the, on the practice of living according to. To the ways of the world. What can I do to make an extra buck on this deal? Can I water down the soup? You know, what what can I do to to make it? So this deceitfulness serves as a backdrop to the parable. So in the, in the narrative, there was a rich man. He had a manager or a steward who wasted his possessions. This is the word I told you. He wasted his possessions. The prodigal son, what? This he wasted his father's inheritance. This man wasted his master's possessions. They both wasted. The son wasted it in wild living. The manager wasted his master's money with poor business practices. It doesn't say he stole the money. He just wasted the money. It was likely through negligence and and carelessness. Um, He just didn't manage his master's affairs with the diligence that it was needed. Possibly he spent more time on the boat or on the golf course than in the office. And and, uh, he just proved himself to be untrustworthy. He wasted his master's money. Well, the master sent him a notice. And he wanted to see the books. And he wanted to audit the accounts. And the manager knew that his goose was cooked because he had wasted his master's money. And the master would soon discover his mismanagement. So knowing he was in dire straits, the steward made some bold decisions. Manual labor was out. He wasn't going to dig ditches. And he was too proud to beg, so he called in his master's debtors, and he had them rewrite their bills, offering them some huge discounts. And he hoped by helping them, they would remember him when he came to them with a pink slip in his hand. And the master commended the the manager's foresight. The manager, you see, had skills for investment. He just didn't apply them in the right time and in the right way. He could do it. And this is one of the few times that Jesus applied the parable uh, so we know exactly what he's talking about. See, citizens of heaven can learn from the, master, uh, from the manager's prudence. We can invest now to make friends in the eternal kingdom. And secondly, our management of earthly trust will determine whether we're entrusted with spiritual riches. And thirdly, no one can serve two masters. We can only give devotion to one master. We can't serve both money and God. And then the third parable is called the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Now again, there's a rich man. And, and he was dressed in purple and fine linen. These, these robes are, are, are the attire descriptive of a king. Maybe he had royal blood in him. We don't know. He lived in luxury, and at, the, at his gate, there was a beggar named Lazarus, and he was placed there every day. Now, the Greek basically says he was thrown there every day. It wasn't like he was put there with gentle care. He was treated more like a, a, a bag of dirty laundry when he was placed there every day. And the rich man, in his luxury, paid no attention to Lazarus begging at his gate. Lazarus longed for what fell off the rich man's table, but nothing was provided for him. The coldness of the rich man towards Lazarus is magnified when Jesus adds to the story that even the dogs licked Lazarus' sores. Now, now, in our world, we we love our dogs. They become family pets. But in that world, dogs were not loved. And that dogs would come and provide some comfort to this this beggar while the rich man completely ignored him. It, It stresses the condemnation of the rich man. He wouldn't even apply any salve to help the beggar. And eventually both men died. Lazarus went to eternal joys. The rich man descended to eternal damnation. And the rich man was given a glimpse into the eternal joys where he saw Lazarus eating with Abraham or at Abraham's side. Some scholars suggest that this is a hint of the feast. Remember the feast in the other other parables? The banquet? This, This is what some people say that the rich man saw. He saw Lazarus sitting down at the banquet feast beside Abraham. And what a shock it must have been for the rich man. Because here Abraham, who was and is highly esteemed in Israel, here he is sitting and welcoming Lazarus. See, the beggar that the rich man ignored was sitting in the company of Israel's greatest patriarch, having fellowship. Wow. But the rich man's pride was not not dealt with because of his punishment, because notice in this parable, he speaks to Abraham. He completely ignores Lazarus. He has nothing to say to Lazarus. He He still has him on ignore. He told Abraham, send Lazarus to cool my my, with water to cool my tongue. His punishment brought no change of heart. He was still greater than Lazarus. But Abraham denied the request because the chasm between them was too great. It was not passable. And the rich man would continue in his torment while Lazarus eternally enjoyed fellowship with the saints. That's the three parables. And they all deal with money. Money. Wasted his father's inheritance, wasted his master's money, and a rich man who would not part with his money. And, and they, they provide an overall lesson. And the overall lesson is that all that we have is not ours. It belongs to the king. And we must manage it wisely. Wisely. See, Jesus understood the attraction that money has for us. And he knows that as long as money has a special place in our hearts, he cannot have complete reign. And in the parables, we learn how to put money in its place, how how to handle it. We discover how to keep the trust that Jesus has given to us. So the parable of the lost son is about repentance. See, the young man wasted his father's inheritance on wild living. He spent all that he had on himself. And in the end, he was left destitute. And so the prodigal son reveals the end of the person who is convinced that money buys happiness. If I'm gonna be happy, I have to have lots and lots and lots of money to spend on whatever I want today. And if money is only about bigger toys and classier vehicles and larger houses and earlier retirement and designer clothes, then we will end up being miserable and most likely feeling very lonely. See, the love of money will damage us. Listen to these words from 1 Timothy 6, 9 to 10. People who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and some people craving money have wandered away from the truth, faith, and pierced themselves with many sorrows. Money is a poor lover. It will steal you blind. And the siren song of prosperity has lured many people away from the kingdom of God. And while we know that the scriptures teach that God has given us all things to enjoy, and we don't need to take vows of poverty to enter the kingdom of heaven, The person in the kingdom of heaven guards their heart against the love of money. They repent when money begins to steal their devotion. And and they're alert at how wealth pushes its agenda to get to the top of our hearts. And we need the help of the Holy Spirit to discern the status of our affections. When, When the Spirit prods us to give, when He nudges us to pray, when He asks us to serve, and we don't obey because we think we can't afford the time or the money, while well, all the time pursuing material gain, we need to repent. We need to reflect like the prodigal son. Which is better? The kingdom of, of, of that I'm building unto myself or the kingdom of heaven? My house or the Father's house? And what if we gain everything we want? We have all the fun we want, we have all the toys we want, and all the money we ever dreamed of making, and we lose out with God. How does that benefit us? How does that make us better off? How does that add quality to our lives? These are the questions that Jesus wants us to answer when we enter the kingdom of heaven. What if I gain this whole world, but I lose the kingdom? What have I gained? The parable of the steward, or of the shrewd manager, is about investment. The first one is about repentance, the second one is about investment. In response to the master's audit notice, the dishonest manager showed wisdom. He planned ahead, he prepared for a better tomorrow. And Jesus shared the parable lesson use worldly wealth to benefit others and make friends. And then when your possessions are gone, they will welcome you into the eternal kingdom. We do it all the time. People invest in golf lessons. Why? So they play a better game. People take refresher courses, why? So they'll have uh, have the knowledge and, and the document that when a promotion comes, they can step up the ladder. We invest in better tools because then it allows us to work quicker and we can do better work. So we make the investment. We, we just do it all the time. We're all constantly. This is the way we think. We constantly are thinking of ways to make life easier, to, to save money, and to have a better tomorrow. But Jesus wants us to use the same inclination, the same thinking when it comes to the kingdom of heaven. What can I do today to make it better for heaven? What can I invest in today? See, there's a common complaint among pastors, and I can tell this now because I'm just so close to retirement. And I've heard it from more than one pastor, okay? And I really think it's part of this parable. That's why I'm telling you this here. See, people... Pastors pastors wonder about people who have received high training and have developed real skills in the workplace. But but when it comes to the church, they decline to use that training and those skills to benefit the church and to reach out into the kingdom. When asked to use those skills, for the church, they often decline. They they don't want to do that, and, and what we see as pastors is we see this great great well of resources for the kingdom that we can't be that can't be used because because we haven't seen what Jesus is teaching us here that we're responsible to use all that we have been given, all that we have been blessed with. For the purposes of the kingdom of heaven. People have knowledge and skills and trades that could be invested for the kingdom work. God has placed in their hands some wonderful things. And, the, and God asks you to use it for the kingdom. See, Jesus added to this parable, if you're faithful in little things, you will be faithful in larger ones. But if you're dishonest in little things, you won't be honest with greater things. And if you're untrustworthy about worldly wealth, who will trust you with the true riches of heaven? And if you're not faithful with other people's things, why should you be trusted with things of your own? See, when Jesus talks about other people's things, he's talking about his things. The things that he has given us. Everything we have belongs to him. They are his his things, and he asks that we would use them for his kingdom. And our use of his things determine our spiritual growth. See, we won't be trusted with spiritual truth and spiritual revelation if all we do is think earthly things. And all that we can do is benefit from our earthly things. If our minds are continually absorbed in earthly things, we will not be blessed with spiritual revelations. And when we're given earthly things, just like this shrewd manager, we're put on trial. And we're responsible for what God has placed in our hands. And so we ask the question, will we make good investment or will we waste our master's possessions? That's the question of the parable. Will we waste what the master has placed in our hands? So the one is about repentance. The other one's about investment. And the third one, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, is about generosity. See, the rich man ignored Lazarus, begging at his gate. He never once, out of his abundance, thought about sharing with the poor beggar. He had the opportunity, because in the parable it says he was there every day. He was put there every day. It's hard to believe that not once, not even at Christmas time, of course, that's not part of the parable, but it, not even at some holy day, didn't even think, well, maybe I could give the boy a fruitcake. Nothing. He didn't think of anything. He had the opportunity. Lazarus was at his gate every day. He had the means. Lazarus longed for what dropped off his table. His leftovers would have kept Lazarus happy. And that's the thing we sometimes think. Oh, we've got to make a big gift. Sometimes it's just our leftovers are quite adequate to serve the need. He could have met Lazarus' need with what he threw away. But his lack of generosity revealed his spiritual poverty. In hoarding on earth, he had nothing for heaven. And the kingdom of heaven is marked by the generosity of its citizens. They look out for the poor, and they have compassion for the hurting, and they respond to needs. See, generosity is a mindset in the kingdom. It's more than a one-time gift, you know, some cause. We, you know, we think that's a generous gift, and it often is a generous gift, but it's more than that. It's a way of life. It's helping. It's participating. It's giving. Whenever there's a need, presented, It's asking, who is sitting at my gate every day, and I'm ignoring? Who is it that sits at my gate? It's providing a helping hand whenever the need is presented. A generous person may stay late. So that a coworker can go home a little earlier. See, a generous person may offer a lift, offer a ride uh, for someone, even though it's out of their way on the way home. A generous person doesn't wait for others to volunteer. They don't sit on their hands. See, a generous person do- doesn't, doesn't hold back for forgiveness. A generous person gives generously second chances. These are the spirit of a generous person. Now the parable, please don't please understand, the parable doesn't teach that we earn our way into heaven. No, the scriptures are very clear about that. Eternal life is had only through faith in Jesus Christ. It is a gift of God, it's a work of his grace. Let's be honest about that. But the parable does teach us that those who have experienced God's grace, who have experienced God's grace in salvation, Demonstrate it to the world around them. You know, in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, it reads, You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Did you catch that? The generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you or us rich. See, Jesus is the pattern of God's generous heart. He's the generous, benevolent king who rules in the kingdom. And we have benefited greatly from his open-handedness. What good thing has he withheld from any of us? He gave his very self on the cross. And so this morning, we're going to participate in the Lord's Supper. And we're going to celebrate the king's generosity. In, in, In remembering our Lord's death, we're going to be mindful of his example. He gave everything so that we might have all the riches of heaven. He poured out. He lavishly, the Bible says, gives us all things to enjoy. So in eating the bread today, we're going to remember his body. What does it say? His body given in death. Not taken. Given. His body was given in death. And in drinking the wine, we're going to remember the price of our redemption. The cost that was paid. We are not redeemed with, uh, with uh, silver or gold or, or perishable things, but we're redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus. He gave his own lifeblood. And in remembering, let's renew our purpose. Let's revisit our vision. We're citizens in the kingdom of heaven. And let's consider the trust that has been placed in our hands today. We have been given a great trust. We have been given so many blessings in Canada. So many blessings in Renfrew County. So many blessings. Let us consider that. You understand that every one of you are in the top, I don't know, percentage of the world's wealthiest, don't you? All of us are. We're in the top percentage of the world's wealthiest. We have been blessed. So in remembering, let us consider what's been placed in our hands. The trust that God has given to us to fulfill. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for all that you have given to us in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the sacrifice that was made. We thank you, Father, that we ever got to live in this wonderful part of the world. That we've had abundant blessings poured out upon us, Father. That we have, we have repeatedly been given blessing after blessing after blessing. I, I see, Lord, all around us, evidence of this, this generosity that you've poured out upon us. And I want to thank you for it. And I want to thank you most of all for the generous gift of Jesus Christ. For the sacrifice that was made. For the gift that was given. It's an unspeakable gift. How do we fully describe it? How do we fully give thanks for it? But take our thanksgiving today. And we praise you. We worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. The night our Lord was arrested, he commemorated a meal with his disciples. He took the loaf of bread, and he broke it, and he shared it with the disciples, and he, said, and he said it was his body given in death. And later he took the cup of wine, and he gave it to them, and he told them to pass it out among the disciples, and he told them to drink it, saying that the wine represented his blood shed in death. And ever since that day, the church has just kept this very simple ritual, and we eat the bread and we drink the cup to remember our Lord's death. And we believe that in this act of remembrance, Jesus is present with us. He honors this, this, this uh, commemorative meal with his presence. We believe that. And it's a way to demonstrate our love and affection for Jesus. It's a way for us to identify that we are two part, uh, partners in the kingdom of heaven. We should be mindful of how we approach this table. We should come to the table confessing the need of a Savior. The scriptures instruct us to examine ourselves before we partake of this meal. And if we know of any sin, of any disobedience, we should confess it before God, before eating this meal. Second, we approach this table in faith, confident that he who died for us is able to bring us to God. And third, we come to this table filled with thanksgiving, remembering the gift, remembering the cost, the cost that was paid for our salvation. And if you've never asked God to forgive you through Jesus Christ, taking your sin upon himself and bringing you into relationship with God and member of the family of God, you can do that even while you partake of this meal. Humbly tell God how how sorry you are for walking away from Him. Ask His Spirit to come into your life and enable you to live the life that He wants you to live. And trust that in Jesus' death and in His resurrection, this can be so, that you can be made right with God. You can know salvation through faith in Him. This table has been prepared for all who love, trust, and live for our Lord. And so you may come, because you too are invited. You're invited to be part of the kingdom of heaven. And it's a foretaste of that great banquet that awaits us when our Lord returns To Earth someday. I invite you to take the cup that you have, and peel off. There's a cellophane, clear cellophane. Peel that back, and that reveals a wafer. Take that wafer, and we will eat together, the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for you. And you can peel off the next layer that will reveal the juice and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for you. Father God, again, we thank you. We thank you for the wonderful gift. We thank you that you're so generous with your presence. Father, you give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. So we ask for your spirit. We ask for you to be with us. We ask for you to be with us in our time of need. We ask, Lord, that you would hold us in your hand. And we will thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.